Today on Eco Report. When you think of the various species in Denali, some will only be minorly impacted by climate change, and others, climate change could have a much greater effect on their population. We bring you the second and final part of our interview with Dave Shearer as he discusses the effects of climate change on Denali National Park. Eco Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. Eco Report is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Good morning and welcome to Eco Report for WFHB. I'm Don Guerra. And I'm Aaron Comforti. On May 1st, the local Duke Energy office in Bloomington, Indiana, was graffitied with the words, James Marker, hashtag no sable trail. The graffiti referred to U.S. veteran James Marker, who protested the environmentally destructive and racist $3.3 billion sable trail pipeline. Marker sabotaged a section of the pipeline with a high-powered rifle. No one was hurt during the sabotage, and the pipeline section was severely damaged. After the sabotage, the police who have been hired by the pipeline company as pipeline security chased Marker in their cars and killed him by the side of the highway in Florida. All of the involved police officers have been placed on administrative leave following the shooting. The extrajudicial killing left the community of protesters shocked and has become a rallying point for environmental activists far and wide. The site of the recent Bloomington graffiti is home to Duke Energy, which is the largest utility company in the world and supplies Bloomington with electricity. According to its website, in May 2015, Duke Energy announced a $225 million investment in Sable Trail Pipeline and became a 7.5% owner of the pipeline. When completed, the Sable Trail Pipeline will annex 515-mile stretch of environmentally sensitive land by way of eminent domain, from individuals in Alabama, Georgia, and Florida. The pipeline's inevitable future spills most endanger the communities of color through which the pipeline passes. Many of the same communities are dealing with extremely high levels of industrial pollution already. On the radical revolutionary website, itsgoingdown.com.org, the individuals who wrote the graffiti posted a brief explanation of their actions. Quote, Last night we tagged Duke Energy Office with words, James Marker, hashtag no sable trail. This was done in memory of James Leroy Marker, who was killed by Florida police after using a high-powered rifle to sabotage the sable trail pipeline. Duke Energy is heavily invested in this pipeline and is therefore complicit in James Marker's murder. They went on to say, quote, This fracked methane pipeline threatens unique ecosystems associated with the Floridan aquifer, including countless rivers, lakes, and streams, and the associated flora and fauna. Those, this was a, but a small action. It serves as a reminder that pipeline resistance isn't limited to construction sites or public rallies. They concluded, Vengeance for James Leroy Marker, down with the pipeline and its world. In more local news, the Monroe County Democratic Party is voicing frustration 
with the governor's signing of an anti-solar energy bill, Senate Bill 309. Holcomb signed the bill last week. The chair of the local Democratic Party, Mark Fraley, says the new legislation is another attack on Monroe County's local control. There are areas in which Bloomington is making a lot of progress, whether it's on housing or uh, sustainability, the environment. And these are areas that are being crushed by the legislature. Bloomington here, we've made a lot of progress in trying to create incentives for families and businesses and churches to install solar panels on their facilities as well as housing. And every step of the way, the state legislature is telling us that we cannot be incubators of progressive policy ideas locally. Senate Bill 309 will eventually end net metering, which allows solar power customers to sell extra electricity back to the grid at a retail rate. Net metering helps make solar energy affordable for many customers. Fraley says he believes the legislation is at least partly the result of influence from Indiana's large utility companies, which rely mostly on fossil fuels. The state's utility companies contributed more than a million dollars to legislators last year. Case that the major energy lobbies were strongly behind SB 309, and there's certainly something that they really fear about consumers taking some power into their own hands and being able to purchase clean, renewable sources of energy. The scaling back of net metering won't begin to take place until July of 2022. It will affect new solar users after that date. While the legislation makes it more difficult for households to generate solar power, Industry experts say they expect large utility companies will increase their generation of solar energy, which has become cheaper in recent years. And for all of you Bloomington cyclists out there, the City of Bloomington's Planning and Transportation Department will be working with Monroe County Government, IU's Bicycle Program, and the Monroe County Library to provide several special events to celebrate biking. One upcoming event is, quote, Bike to Work Day and Block Party on Friday, May 19th. Participants are encouraged to bike to work. Swing by three encouragement stations from 7.30 to 10 a.m. on the B-Line near Dodds on Courthouse Square or near Sample Gates. And to attend a block party from 4 to 7 p.m. on Grand Street between Kirkwood Avenue and 6th Street to enjoy food and celebrate. More information can be found by visiting bloomington.in.gov bike. On Eco Report recently, we reported on a spill of the carcinogen hexavalent chromium from U.S. Steel's Portage, Indiana plant into the Burns Waterway, a tributary of Lake Michigan. According to the Indiana Department of Environmental Management, it turns out that the plant spilled almost 300 pounds of the toxic byproduct of industrial processes on April 11th and 12th. The amount spilled is 584 times the maximum limited amount per day under state law. Allowed per day under state law. The spill occurred only hundreds of feet from Lake Michigan and reportedly took place because of an equipment failure. Because of the spill, EPA is requiring U.S. Steel to undertake long-term water monitoring for hexavalent chromium. The spill resulted in the temporary closure of several beaches and Indiana American Waters intake in Ogden Dunes, Indiana. The beaches and water intake reopened on April 17th after EPA water samples found levels of the chemical in the lake below the detection limit of one part per billion. 
In more Great Lakes water news, we turn now to the well-known lead crisis in Flint, Michigan, where a state-appointed emergency manager switched the city's water supply from Lake Huron to the corrosive Flint River, which then corroded the old pipes and contaminated the drinking water with lead. Many homes in Flint still don't have potable water coming from their taps, and the city has only just begun replacing the lead-containing pipes. Residents are upset that the city has been charging them for the water all along. To add insult to injury, the city's recently announced that if homeowners don't pay their back bills for water, they might face foreclosures on their homes. The city mailed over 8,000 notices to homeowners in an attempt to collect almost $6 million in unpaid bills for water and sewer services. If the homeowners don't pay up, property liens will be transferred to tax bills. The result will be a process that can cause the loss of their homes unless residents pay their outstanding bills. In U.S. political news, the White House postponed a meeting on the Paris Agreement again. A May 9th White House meeting on the Paris Agreement has been postponed to an as-yet unspecified later date. As the administration inches towards a final decision on the accord, retired senior military officers sent a letter to Secretary of State Rex Tillerson and Secretary of Defense James Mattis, urging them to support the deal in White House negotiations. The letter states, Climate change poses strategically significant risks to U.S. national security, directly impacting our critical infrastructure and increasing the likelihood of humanitarian disasters, state failure, and conflict. The Wall Street Journal reported that Condoleezza Rice also made a case for the agreement in a recent Oval Office meeting. Rumor has it that Donald's daughter, Ivanka Kushner, is in favor of going forward with the Paris Agreement as well although her public role has generally centered on pacifying politically moderate critique of the administration by her purportedly progressive political stances. The business world is also mobilizing to voice their support for the agreement, which GOP heavyweights and climate leadership council leaders George Schultz and Ted Halstead summarized in a New York Times op-ed. They say, The president's Paris verdict will ultimately be about more than climate, It also carries major implications for America's place in the geoeconomic order. Staying in Paris would advance the president's priorities not only by creating jobs, but also by leveling the playing field in trade. American companies are well-positioned to benefit from growing global markets in clean technologies, generating domestic jobs and growth, unquote. Several climate denier groups also sent a letter on Monday to Trump in favor of exiting the deal. In more Washington news, Senators Jeff Merkley, Bernie Sanders, and Ed Markey introduced legislation at the end of April that would completely phase out fossil fuel use by 2050. The 100 by 50 Act outlines a bold plan to replace oil, coal, and gas with clean energy sources like wind and solar. 100 is an important number, said 350.org co-founder Bill McKibben. Instead of making changes around the margins, this bill would finally commit America to the wholesale energy transformation that technology has made possible and affordable, and that an eroding climate makes utterly essential. This bill won't pass Congress immediately. The fossil fuel industry will see to that, but it will change the debate in fundamental ways, McKibben said. The 100 by 50 Act would put a halt to projects like the Keystone XL and Dakota Access Pipeline. 
Instead of new fossil fuel infrastructure, the bill invests hundreds of billions of dollars in renewable energies, enough to create 4 million jobs. The 100 by 50 Act would not end America's reliance on fossil fuels until 2050. And two important wins for wildlife occurred on May 1st involving polar bears and wolves. First, the U.S. Supreme Court stated that it won't consider arguments from oil and gas companies, the state of Alaska, and others to reverse a Ninth Circuit Court decision and strike down critical habitat protections for polar bears. The court upheld a 2010 critical habitat designation that covered 120 million acres, the largest in the history of the Endangered Species Act. This victory helps ensure that polar bears will retain the habitat protections they need for a chance at surviving in the rapidly warming world. Second, at least for the time being, wolves in the Great Lakes region are safe from hunting and trapping. That's because almost none of the nearly 160 anti-environmental policy riders attached to the budget bill funding the federal government for 2017 passed into the final bill. And a nuclear waste storage tunnel at the controversial Hanover nuclear waste site in Washington state collapsed on Tuesday morning, forcing workers to take cover. The Hanover site has a troubled history from its very beginnings, when it was first built in the 1940s as a plutonium enrichment facility. When the site was chosen by the U.S. government, residents of Hanover, Washington, were given 30 days to leave their homes and vacate the area entirely. The plutonium that was refined at Hanover was used in the bomb that the U.S. dropped on Nagasaki. The U.S. ramped up nuclear weapons stockpile production at the site during the Cold War by adding eight additional reactors. And in 1987, the plant was shut down, and in 89, the cleanup began, a multi-billion dollar annual cleanup program. The site contains billions of gallons of radioactive waste and contaminated water. The recent tunnel collapse is alarming and may pose a threat to the Columbia River, which passes just free feet from the Hanover plant. And those are some of the headlines for WFHB and Eco Report. I'm Aaron Comforti. And I'm Don Guerra. We love getting emails and messages from you. Contact us if you have any thoughts about stories we've aired or if you have any future story ideas. Please send e emails to earth at wfhb.org. In today's Eco Report feature, we hear part two of correspondent Norm Holy's interview with Dave Shirukar from the Denali National Park in Alaska about the effects of climate change in the park. I'd like to switch to the forest. What's happening in terms of a forest? Any changes regarding uh, climate change? Yes, so we're starting in the forest, the boreal forest, we're starting to see what we believe is an increase in the fire regime. So, the, again, the same part of the park I'm talking about, the northern two million acres, is very fire prone, and that's natural. We've had forest fires here for millennia. Um, we've been tracking them more closely in geographic information systems since the 80s, and we're actually starting to detect a trend where there is an earlier start of the fire season where there are um, 
greater acreages burned annually on average and where the severity of the fires are getting more intense. And we suspect this is related to climate change. We probably need a few more years of data to really nail that because we haven't been tracking it that long, but it certainly appears fire regime is impacted um, by climate change. And one of the unusual parts about the fire regime that we've just started to look into is some of the areas that are being burned are being burned twice in short succession. The uh, records, the historic records, suggest that a fire return interval of 50 to 100 years is common for this ecosystem, but we're seeing in a couple of places a fire return interval of 10 years. And that was somewhat unexpected. Typically areas that burn the fuel is, is burned up and we don't get another burn for quite a while. Now is that because, <laughs> because the biological activity in the growing season is longer and you, so therefore the, the, the combustibles come back quicker? Um, that's, that's probably part of it, but it's maybe just the weather conditions and the number of lightning strikes. You know, we're not exactly sure why these areas are burning twice in short succession, but, but we know they are. And what happens when they are is they can come back into a very different ecosystem. When, you know, when there's a fire and it's another 50 years till the fire returns, that site typically looks similar 50 years later to it, to before it burned. It returns to a spruce forest. Yep. However, if it burns um, quickly, the seedlings are, have the potential to be killed off, the spruce seedlings, and so it can come back as something else, um, possibly a grassland or a shrubland. And so we're seeing a, uh, the high potential for a state change in the ecosystems due to fire. I see. Now, what other effects are you seeing in, in the park of climate well, change? Well, one of the most blatant effects is the impacts to the park's infrastructure, and in particular the park road. So Denali has a 96-mile road that goes out into the park, and this is really one of the cornerstones of tourism for the state of Alaska. People come here from all over the world to see the park's iconic wildlife and view the mountain. And this road was constructed in the mid-1920s. It's a spectacular feat of engineering. Portions of the road are underlain by permafrost, and there's also um, sporadic permafrost above and below the road. And this is a dirt road. It's very mountainous, very dynamic terrain, and it's always been a challenge to maintain this road, but the challenge is getting more dramatic. We're seeing an increase in landslides, and these are landslides where material either lands on top of the road and, and blocks it for a little while. Um, typically, we can clear that off, but it's, it is creating challenges. Occasionally, the landslides are below the road, and we're concerned that there are places in the, along the road where the whole road could slide out, and um, that would be very hard to repair. Um, we're seeing some of these kind of slow-motion slides I don't want to suggest that the road is dangerous. It's not something that's, you know, where there'll be a vehicle on the road and it's just going to slip away and uh, people will get carried away. But we're seeing a lot of subsidence in portions of the road. So we're, 
we're trying to figure out what to do about that. It's uh, it's kind of a long process, but it's it's a big deal. Uh, I'd like to ask you about the um, wolf population. How how is it doing in the park? The, which part, Which species? I didn't quite catch that. The wolf. Um, right. So we've been um, tracking wolves in the park since um, about 1986. We try to keep radio collars on at least two members of every pack that uses the park for at least a large part of its range. And um, the wolf population has fluctuated from a low of um, in the low 50s to a high of approaching 150 animals. And again, this is a natural dynamic. It depends on a lot on what is going on in the winter. So winters where there's a lot of snow, wolves do really well because their prey is bogs down in the snow, and the wolves are adapted to travel on top of snow. So they they do they like winters with low snow with with high snow. Um, lately, we've had a lot of winters with low snow, and so for the last few years, the wolf population has declined, and there there are a few factors associated with this. We're trying to tease them apart. It's, you know, it has to do with, uh, with snow, with prey availability, and with harvest. And, and it's difficult to tell what the effect of each feature that impacts the wolf population has on the whole population. Um, we think our, you know, we're at a, a low in the cycle right now, although it just came up. Right now we are having a very good snow year. So we suspect that the wolf population will increase. But a couple of years ago, it was at an all-time low. We did have some concerns about that, but it does appear to be coming back. As a final question, let me ask you about the bear population. Um, The bear population is relatively stable. We haven't really counted the bears in, in quite a while, but there doesn't seem to be any... Um, major fluctuations in the bear population. And I might say, you know, that bears are really adaptable animals. Um, Grizzly bears are a circumpolar species. They live in the Gobi Desert. They um, used to live in Mexico. They live up in the Arctic where they occasionally encounter polar bears. And so when you think about climate change, I think bears probably have a lot of tricks up their sleeve and will they, they can adapt to a variety of situations. Um, caribou are much more sensitive. And, and so when you think of this, the various charismatic species in Denali, some probably will only be minorly impacted by climate change, and others, like doll sheep or caribou, could have, uh, climate change could have a much greater effect on their population and on their habits. Uh, Dave, I'd like to thank you very much for a a wonderful interview. I know our listeners are going to be fascinated with your story. So I've been speaking with Dave Shirokauer today at Denali Park, and uh, we wish you all the best. Yeah, it's been my pleasure talking to you. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you very much. And Eco Report 
is currently seeking volunteer journalists to contribute short weekly headlines about ecological issues, from indigenous resistance to infrastructure projects, to climate change and biological diversity. Commitment is light, and you can set your own schedule. For more information, email us at earth at wfhb.org or call 812-323-1200. The Bloom uh, and now for our weekly events calendar. The Bloomington Organic Gardeners Association, known as BOGA, will have their fir- their free plant swap at the Bloomington Community Farmers Market on Saturday, May 13th from 8 a.m. to 1 p.m. Bring plants and seeds to share and or swap. Native plants, tree saplings, and seeds are encouraged but all non-invasive plants are welcome. A banding and bird walk at the Mary Gray Bird Sanctuary located at 3499 South Bird Sanctuary Road in Connersville, Indiana, will take place on Saturday, May 13th from 6 a.m. to 1 p.m. Banding begins at sunrise and the nets will go up. You can walk the net lines to enjoy the birds from 7 a.m. to 11 a.m. Go to W-I-L-M-A-M-S-A-B at M-I-A-M-I-O-H dot E-D-U or call 765-309-2958 to participate and get more information. A bluebird and tree swallow hike will take place at Spring Mill State Park on Saturday, May 13th from 3 to 4 p.m. Bird boxes are in the field. Take a peek at the progress the birds have made. Will they have chicks yet? Come out and find out. Meet at the pool parking lot and bring a hat. An open house will take place at the Owen Putnam State Forest on Wednesday, May 17th from 3 to 7 p.m. Meet at the property office, which is located five miles west of Spencer and less than one mile north of State Road 46. Take this opportunity to learn about recreation, projects, forest resource management, and planning in the forest. For more information, call 812-829-2462. The Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra's second annual Infusion Music Festival will begin at 5.30 p.m. on Wednesday, May 17th, and ends on Saturday, May 20th at 8 p.m. with concerts on each day at the Hilbert Circle Theater, located at 45 Monument Circle in Indianapolis. The festival celebrates the connection between music and the environment with three special concerts and an evening with some leading environmental organizations. This is a ticketed event. That wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's news stories were written by Linda Green, Norm Holy, Joe Crawford, Kathy Norton, and Aaron Comforti, who also edited the script. Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. Megan Wade and Matt Griffin are our engineers. Our executive producer is Joe Crawford. For WFHB, I'm Don Guerra. And I'm Aaron Comforti. Join us on Thursdays at 11.30 a.m. before Democracy Now! 
and on Fridays at 5 p.m. before KiteLine for our weekly radio rundown of ecological news and resistance. Until then, EcoReport encourages you to take direct action to defend the Earth. You've been listening to the Eco Report, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source for South Central Indiana, bringing you news that the Earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org. Thank you.